Welcome to History of Europe Key Battles, the Spanish Armadas, Part 4 of 5. The Spanish Armada remains today one of the most iconic events in both English and Spanish history. In the summer of 1588, one of the largest fleet of warships of pre-modern times sailed into the English Channel, sent by King Philip II of Spain. The plan was to link up with a massive Spanish army stationed in the Netherlands, to invade England and then to depose the Queen of England, Elizabeth I. The early English historians of the Armada, because most of them were Protestants, depicted a tiny England, bravely resisting the overwhelming might of the Spanish superpower. Often quoted is an observer who likened England and its unmarried queen to, quote, a bone thrown between two dogs, unquote, to portray the kingdom's vulnerability in the contest between Western Europe's two superpowers of the day, Spain and France. On their side, the English had the rightness of their cause and the splendid bravery and skill of their sailors, a heady mixture of patriotism and religion. Later historians gave a more accurate picture of the events, estimating that the fleets were roughly equal in size, with a greater mobility and firepower advantage to the English. There is truth in that Spain was at that time at the height of its power, Portugal and its empire were securely in Philip's hands. The Ottoman threat had stopped growing, and mounting returns from the Indies permitted the steady increase of armed forces in the Netherlands, which was rapidly being taken back under Spanish control by the Duke of Parma and his army there. As for the motivations for the Armada, a common perception is that Spain was an overly aggressive Catholic superpower, attempting to exterminate Protestantism and stifle freedom of worship, and that Philip's central ambition was to enlarge his already massive empire. The trigger for Philip's decision is often seen as his outrage at the execution of his fellow Catholic, Mary Queen of Scots, the true pictures, as outlined in the previous two episodes, was more complex than this. Not long ago, England and Spain had been allies, but had grown increasingly distrustful of each other over the years, not only because of differences in faith, but also rivalry over the newly discovered Americas, and most importantly of all, conflicting strategic interests in the Netherlands. English interest in a new world had begun back in 1480 and 1481, when Bristol seamen made at least two voyages of Atlantic exploration. And in 1496, King Henry VII of England granted privileges to a pair of Genoese navigators to sail across the Atlantic in search for northwest passage through the Arctic ice to the Pacific Ocean and the East Indies, although they failed to find it. As for King Henry VIII, in spite of his interest in all things naval, he showed little interest in promoting explorations in the New World. A step forward was taken in 1553, under the reign of Edward VI, when expeditions were sent to try and discover a northeastern passage to Asia through the Arctic Ocean. 
Two of the ships foundered and their crew froze to death, but the third reached as far as the White Sea and managed to make contact with Moscow. Its captain, Richard Chancellor, negotiated a trade agreement with the ruler of Russia, Ivan the Terrible. Of greater significance in the long term was another English maritime enterprise, piracy. During the reign of Henry VIII, the English made great strides in shipbuilding and the manufacture of cannons, both quality and quantity. Piracy had long been endemic in southwest England, but became part of official policy when Henry VIII issued a general licence for English ships to attack French and Scottish merchant vessels in December 1544. Paul Hammer, in his book Elizabeth's Wars, writes that, quote, Piracy proved so profitable to English shipowners and many gentlemen investors who took a financial stake in these expeditions that even the cessation of hostilities failed to curb the seizure of ships. The government of England had only a loose control over the activities of the pirates and could not have stamped out the practice even if they had wanted to. In the 1560s, the growing tensions between Elizabethan England and the Catholic powers helped to make piracy against French and Spanish ships seem patriotic and part of the unofficial wars which Elizabeth's government formally disallowed. The unofficial nature of the practice allowed Elizabeth a policy of deniability to foreign ambassadors, however implausible. In truth, a community of Protestant adventurers grew to become an influential lobby group in England, who also encouraged intrusions into the New World, which had been reserved to Spain and Portugal by a papal treaty of 1494. In the 1560s, Englishmen began to enter the Caribbean in voyages which combined commerce with piracy. Most famously, John Hawkins launched a series of transatlantic raids in which he bought or captured slaves in West Africa and sold them to Spanish colonists in the Caribbean. King Philip of Spain was determined to block such intrusions into the New World, and in September 1568, Spanish forces attacked Hawkins' ships at the Battle of San Juan in Mexico, which resulted in the loss of all but two of the English ships. Such events underline the increasingly fraught relations between the English and the Spanish. By far the most notorious of the English privateers was Francis Drake, who in the 1570s made repeated attacks on Spanish ships in the Caribbean, from where huge quantities of silver and treasures were brought across the Pacific. Although the raids brought little profit, they caused grave alarm in Spain, because the finances of the Spanish monarchy depended upon the arrival of the shipments. Philip was forced to spend substantial sums to protect his colonies and the transatlantic convoys. Perhaps Francis Drake's greatest achievement was his circumnavigation of the globe on an expedition that took three years, between 1577 and 1580. The feat had only once before been performed by the Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan. With this success, the English gained a great boost in confidence about opportunities overseas. The East Indies, which had previously seemed impossibly distant, now became a target for trade and piracy. In the wake of Drake's triumphant return, official English attempts to distance themselves from his privateering activities appeared increasingly insincere. 
Elizabeth happily received a cut of the profits and even knighted Drake in April 1581. At this point, although the English privateers were a considerable irritation to King Philip of Spain, it was not a direct act of war, and Spanish losses were not excessive. This changed in 1585 when Queen Elizabeth signed the Treaty of Nonsuch with the Dutch rebels, as described in a previous podcast. She made this agreement out of fear of the Spanish taking control of the Netherlands, which they could then be able to use as a launch pad for the invasion of England. Shortly after signing the Treaty of Nonsuch, the Queen gave permission to Francis Drake to get together a fleet of 20 vessels with which to plunder Spanish shipping in the Caribbean. Philip reacted swiftly, and in December 1585 seized all English ships in Spanish ports, and the next month ordered his ministers to investigate the feasibility of an invasion of England. His determination to attack England directly was strengthened by two things. Drake's activities in the Indies in 1586, where he burnt the ports of Santo Domingo and Cartagena, and also by English assistance in the Netherlands. Philip judged that the completion of the reconquest of the rebellious Dutch provinces could not occur until the English were forced to withdraw their support. Preparations for the attack on England therefore proceeded with great haste, probably too much haste, for in truth the Spanish military machine was decidedly unready. It was at this time in early 1587 when Philip started suffering badly from gout. Worn out by constant hard work, Philip was unwell for the first half of the year and became reclusive. This slowed down the mechanisms of government in Madrid even more than before. Queen Elizabeth, well aware of Philip's intention to launch an invasion, sent Drake to Spain to try and interfere in its preparations. Sailing into Lisbon on the 16th of April 1587, he learnt that a fleet of ships in the port of Cadiz were about to set sail, so he raced down south as fast as he could. Arriving three days later, he launched an attack on Cadiz immediately, despite a warning from his vice-admiral that the port's defences were too strong. The English attack caught the Spanish by surprise and caused panic. Every ship cut its cables and tried to find some sort of escape from the attack. Many collided with each other, while others went aground as they were fired upon by the English fleet. In all, Drake destroyed 37 naval and merchant ships. Over the next month, Drake continued harassing the Spanish. He patrolled the Iberian coasts between Lisbon and Cape St Vincent, intercepting and destroying ships on the Spanish supply lines. The voyage, which came to be known as the Singin of the Spanish King's Beard, was an astonishing success, shook Spanish confidence and succeeded in delaying the invasion of England by year, and made huge profits for the Queen. It also added to the legend of El Duarte, the nickname given to Drake by the Spanish. Meanwhile, Mary, Queen of Scots, for many years held prisoner in England, was charged with involvement in a scheme, the so-called Babington Plot, to assassinate Elizabeth. Essentially, Mary was entrapped, made to believe that her letters to the outside world were secure, while in reality they were deciphered and read by Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth's principal secretary and the most powerful courtier of his day. 
but the proof of Mary's treason was overwhelming, and she was convicted on the 25th of October, 1586, and sentenced to death. Nevertheless, Elizabeth hesitated to order her cousin's executions, even in the face of pressure from the English Parliament to carry out the sentence. Finally, on the 8th of February, 1587, Mary was executed in Fotheringay Castle in Northamptonshire, and immediately became a martyr to the Catholic cause. King Philip had yet one more justification for his invasion of England. The man Philip originally chose to lead the invasion was a very well-regarded admiral, the Marquis of Santa Cruz, but he died in January 1588 of typhoid. In his place, Philip chose the Duke of Medina Sidonia, who was reluctant to accept the task. Although he lacked combat experience, the Duke was actually well qualified. He was a practical, strong-willed general who possessed a good knowledge of navigation. He had recently gained widespread praise in Spain for commanding a relief force which had helped save the port of Cadiz from complete destruction by Francis Drake in 1587, and was well respected for his administrative skills and for keeping a level head in times of crisis. At this stage, Elizabeth, concerned at the cost of war as well as the consequences of a successful Spanish invasion, was hoping for a peaceful resolution. At the start of 1588, after months of trying, she convinced the Duke of Parma to hold a formal peace conference. A high-powered English delegation arrived at Ostend in February, but Parma and his representatives argued about the location of the talks and never got beyond basic questions about a potential ceasefire. Although it was quite apparent that Palmer was not interested in making serious progress, Elizabeth was desperate for peace and instructed her delegates to keep on negotiating. In reality, the peace talks were a deliberate and cynical ploy by Philip to divert Elizabeth. He never had any intention of calling off the invasion. The Spanish strategy was a joint naval and land campaign. He required the Duke of Parma to ferry a task force of 26,000 troops from Flanders across the Channel in a flotilla of some 300 barges. The role of the navy sent from Spain was to patrol the waters between the Flemish coast and Kent to provide cover for Parma's barges. On board the main Armada fleet were some 18,500 troops, mostly war recruits, who would provide backup to Parma's more experienced soldiers. Palmer warned Philip repeatedly that his plan was too complicated and that his army was not yet ready, but the king kept to his original plans regardless. No one knew for certain when, where or even whether the Armada would reach its intended destination. The progress of the fleet would depend heavily on the highly unpredictable winds of the Atlantic coastline. In fact, a violent storm did end up dispersing much of the Armada while it was still off the coast of northern Spain, and it took weeks to regroup. Progress across the Bay of Biscay and along the French coast was then painfully slow. A number of false alarms only added to the sense of anxiety felt along the southern coast of England as people braced themselves for what was to come. The sense of trepidation comes across in a letter from the English naval commander, Sir John Hawkins, where he warns the Spanish fleet was, quote, here and very forcible, and must be waited upon with all our force, which is 
little enough. There should be an infinite quantity of powder and shot provided, without which the country is in grave danger, for this is the greatest and strongest combination to my understanding that ever was assembled in Christendom. End quote. The truth was that England's land forces were far from ready. The coastal fortifications set up by Henry VIII had been poorly maintained, although at least a system of warning beacons were lined up along the southern coast. England also lacked experienced soldiers, so thousands of armed but untrained men had to be sent to bolster numbers, especially in London and Cornwall. Elizabeth herself could do little more than wait. Her fate and that of her country lay in the hands of her commanders, mainly Howard and Drake. Drake argued strongly against the traditional defensive strategy of massing a fleet in the narrower part of the English Channel, which would allow the enemy to make a landing on the southwest coast. Instead, he insisted that bulk of the fleet should be based at Plymouth, from where it would have the ability both to preempt any landing by the Armada and also to defend the Channel throughout its length. They could then shut out the Spanish and attack them as they made their way to Flanders. The Armada finally appeared off the Spanish coast on Friday the 19th of July, 1588, in a tight crescent formation. To the English, the enemy forces looked enormous. Although of the 140 or so ships that had left Spain, only 23 were galleons, that is frontline warships, while another 70 were adapted merchant ships. The whole fleet carried fewer than 8,000 seamen, but approximately 20,000 soldiers. The English fleet, in comparison, comprised nearly 200 vessels, most of which were small auxiliary forces. The main advantage the English possessed was their superior number of cannons, and the better trained naval gunners to fire them. Paul Hammer describes the different tactics of the two sides. Quote, the Spanish Crescent formation was a product of galley warfare and was intended to protect the vulnerable transports from English gunfire by allowing the warship on the Armada's wings to surround, grapple and board any enemy vessels which came too close to the transports. The English were aware of this danger and so sought to maintain a safe distance by using their manoeuvrability to close rapidly on the enemy warships stationed along the Armada's flanks, successively discharging their heavy bow guns and smaller broadside guns before tacking away, firing their larger guns in the stern and withdrawing to reload in safety. End quote. The English fleet was struggling against unfavourable winds, which had trapped it in Plymouth Sound. The Duke of Medina Sidonia was urged by some officers to take advantage of this and to attack the English fleet, but he declined because that would have contradicted Philip's instructions to head straight for a rendezvous with Palmer's forces. He was also not confident of a successful attack because his fleet was not equipped for engaging an enemy fleet covered by shore batteries, especially as its four galleys, which the Spanish regarded as essential for amphibious operations, had failed to make it across the Bay of Biscay. In the evening of the 19th of July, the Spanish fleet having passed by, the English were able to emerge from Plymouth. 
they chased after the Spanish fleet, and the next day caught sight of enemy ships some distance ahead. By the next morning, Sunday the 21st, the Spaniards were within range of the English gunners. The first battle ensued, in which the English got the upper hand. With their faster ships, they fell on the Spanish rearguard and pounded them for three hours with superior artillery. The Spanish lost one of the largest of their front-line ships, the Nuestra Señora del Rosario, after it was involved in a collision. Tuesday morning saw another engagement off the coast of Portland Bill, which ended indecisively. The Spanish were frustrated by their inability to grapple the enemy ships and shocked by the intensity of English cannon fire. They had lost two large ships, which was unfortunate but manageable. As for the English, they were cautious of approaching too close to the Spanish boats, which restricted how much damage they could inflict. Medina Sidonia's biggest problem was that he did not know the whereabouts of the Duke of Parma, and until he could do so, would be unable to link up. He therefore sought anchorage off the Isle of Wight to wait news of the Duke of Parma there. He also tried the tactic of using warships to masquerade as stragglers, hoping to trick the English into coming closer and grapple them. But they refused to take the bait, and in an ensuing battle, drove the Armada past the Isle of Wight. In this third confrontation, the Spanish lost another large ship, the Santa Ana. Medina Sidonia was now in a difficult position and had to settle for anchoring off Calais, in northern France, on the 27th of July. The English fleet dropped anchor half a mile away. The English fleet was joined by reinforcements, which increased the number by about a third. At this point, the Spanish had anchored rather dangerously inshore, but the English also had their concerns, for they might get into difficulties if the weather broke, and a fresh westerly breeze was threatening just that. At last, Medina Sidonia received news from Palma, expressing his joy that the Armada had arrived and promising that his forces would be ready to take part in an invasion of England in about six days. News from different sources revealed, however, a much less optimistic but more realistic picture. In fact, the Duke's major ships were located in Antwerp and Dunkirk, but they had been blockaded the previous year by Dutch Admiral Justin of Nassau. To try and relieve the blockade, Palmer was building a number of small but fast flyboats, but progress on this was going slower than was needed. Medina Sidonia dispatched an urgent message to Palmer. He warned how vulnerable he was to attack from the English, and urgently requested 40 or 50 flyships for his defence. In fact, Palmer had fewer than 20, and some of those were not ready for sea. The fundamental flaws in Philip's plans were now becoming all too apparent. The joining of the Armada and Palmer's army was always going to be a major challenge. But Palmer's lack of preparation, plus Medina Sidonia's restrictive instructions, not to mention the English and Dutch counter-actions, appeared to be dooming the whole expedition to failure. Medina Sidonia realised that his fleet was sitting ducks. Shortly after midnight, on Sunday, the 28th of July, the English directed eight improvised fireships towards the enemy fleet. The Spanish panicked and set sail as quickly as possible to try and avoid their own ships from catching fire. 
In the confusion that followed, the fleet's formation was lost entirely. Some ships collided with each other, others scattered over several square miles of water. As dawn came, Medina Sidonia tried desperately to regather his ships into order. This was not possible, as some of his ships had drifted westward, so he tried to regain formation off the coast of Dunkirk. The English, observing the success of their fireships, at once attacked, and so began the decisive battle of the Gampagne, the Battle of Graveline, on Monday the 29th. The English had spent most of their gunpowder in the first engagements, and so were now forced to conserve their heavy shot and powder for a final attack. Still, they had learnt well from the previous engagements how close exactly they needed to get to the enemy to cause real damage, and how to best exploit their superior manoeuvrability. After eight hours, the English ships began to run out of ammunition, and were forced to pull back. By that time, five Spanish ships had been lost, and many others severely damaged. As strong westerly winds pushed his fleet further east along the channel, the Duke of Medina Sidonia must have realised that his objective of linking up with the Duke of Parma was now impossible. Nevertheless, the threat of a Spanish invasion from the Netherlands had not yet been discounted by the English, who were still nervous. Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, maintained a force of 4,000 soldiers at West Tilbury, Essex, to defend the Thames estuary against any incursion upriver towards London. On the same day as the Armada lay at anchor off Calais, he issued an invitation to Elizabeth to inspect the troops to boost their flagging morale. It took two weeks to make the arrangements, and Elizabeth arrived at Tilbury on the 8th of August. Next morning she appeared at camp for the inspection, reportedly on a white stallion. There she gave to them her royal address, which became, over time, still until today, her most famous ever speech. There are at least six different recorded versions, so historians do not know the exact words said, but one version included the following. Quote, Let tyrants fear, I have always so behaved myself, for the under God I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the low hearts and goodwill of my subjects. And therefore I am come amongst you, as you see at this time, not for my recreation and disport, but being resolved in the midst and heat of battle, to live or die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdoms, and for my people, my honour and my blood, even in the dust. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too, and think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm. She promised also tangible rewards to her troops for their loyalty and affection, and assured the listening troops of victory. In fact, by the time the speech was made, victory had already been secured. The Armada had managed to escape northwards, pursued by the English. This pursuit was essentially a bluff, since the English fleet had exhausted its supply of cannon shot and powder. Nevertheless, the chase was continued to prevent the Spanish from landing in northern England or Scotland, or from seeking shelter for the winter in Germany or Scandinavia. It was not realised for several days later that Medina Sidonia had decided to head home around the north of Scotland and down the west coast of Ireland. This route was not remarkable in itself. Northern England could normally be rounded without too much difficulty. 
but what the ships lacked was adequate charts and pilots who knew the local waters. The weather was exceptionally stormy and took a heavy toll on the Spanish. Almost one-third of the fleet failed to reach home, most losses occurring as ships became wrecked along the coast of Ireland. The plight of English seamen was actually little better. Approximately 100 or so soldiers had been killed in the fighting itself. However, thousands more died from a virulent typhus epidemic that had begun on one of the Royal Naval ships and had swept through the rest of the fleet. Lord Howard, the leading commander in the English fleet, did what he could to help the survivors, many of whom, their wages unpaid, were left to fend for themselves in the streets. Howard even paid for their food and beer from his own purse and sold his gold and silver plate to buy them clothing. He pleaded with Elizabeth to support her soldiers, as she had promised at Tilbury, but Elizabeth rejected his appeal. Indeed, she went further. Determined to brook no opposition, she ordered her privy councillors to arrest and hang a company of soldiers who had walked limping and barefoot to London to demand their pay. Most of those who took up arms for the Queen would never receive a penny. This lays in stark contrast to the Spanish, who were paid in full their wages almost without fail. John Guy writes in his book, Elizabeth the Forgotten Years, that Philip considered payment to be a moral obligation, a matter of honour. Philip II of Spain was bitterly disappointed about the failed Armada campaign, yet he refused to admit defeat. Rather than holding back on further aggression, he decided to intensify his war against the northern heretics. He sent a series of orders to improve his navy, refitting surviving ships as well as building 12 new 1,000-ton galleons, with changes to the ship's guns to copy some of the features of the English. And so, instead of the Armada concluding matters, it marked the beginning of many years of an intermittent conflict, which is known to history as the Anglo-Spanish War, 1585-1604, to and included three more Armadas, or attempted Spanish invasions of England. It's always great to hear from you on Facebook or on the blog www.history.net or write to me directly, car.historyeurope.net Thank you for listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. I hope you can join me next time to listen to the rest of the Anglo-Spanish Wars and the fifth and concluding part of the series on the Spanish Armadas. Until then, have a good week and goodbye.